So as Melissa said, I will be talking about genre, the genre of Revelation. Uh, I'm actually, I'm currently, if you don't know me, I'm the pastoral intern here. I'm a senior at HPU, and I'm writing my thesis on Revelation, actually. So it was felt appropriate for me to fill in for uh, Jeff um, and kind of share some of my research and some of the material I think that is important uh, when we're talking about Revelation. Now, you may ask why we need to study the genre of the Bible, why we need to know about the genre of Revelation. Um, it's very important to look at the genre of any biblical text we're reading because the genre affects how we read it, how we interpret it. Um, a genre can be understood as like a category of literary composition, which is characterized by a particular style, form, or content. That, this is to say that a genre is a broad generalization about a group of literature. And we see evidence of generalization of genre when we go to any bookstore. If you walk into like a used bookstore or go into the mall and go somewhere, you might see sections of science fiction, you might see a romance section, maybe you'll see a biography section. It'd be ridiculous to pick up a science fiction book and read it assuming that it has the same veracity as a biography. We'll read passages about travel to other planets and dealing with other types of creatures differently than we would for a biographical account of someone perhaps in like the Civil War. Um, we might even, uh, we, we might look at how people are interacting with different people on, plant, on different planets differently than we might look at an account of how Christopher Columbus made contact with native peoples in the Americas. Also, when we read the Bible, it's very helpful to think about what we are reading, what, what type of text we're reading. Uh, if we, if, it would be ridiculous to read a book like Song of Solomon the same way that we read a book like First Chronicles. For example, um, First Chronicles 11, 4 through 9, we have this historical narrative of David taking Zion. And we have written that David and all of Israel marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. The, the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, now the city of David. David had said, Whoever t attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, son of Zariah, went up first, so he became chief. David resided in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. He built the city all around, from the middle and complete circuit. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. So from such a passage, we learn of how David takes the forces of Zion, of Jerusalem. And we can talk about how God was with David and how this made David great. But we can also talk about kind of a historical moment where Zion, or Jerusalem, became part of the people of Israel, the part of their land. Um, but to apply a similar lens to this passage from Song of Solomon's would be quite ridiculous. So let me read this. This is Song of Solomon 6, 1 through 3. Where has your beloved gone? O fairest among women, which way has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone to his garden, to the bed of spices, to pasture his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am and my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He pastures his flock among the lilies. So if we try to read this, that passage, in the same way we read First Chronicles, we could attempt to construct a historical account, but I think that'd be ridiculous. A historical account may kind of propose that uh, you have this spouse or significant other of this main character in this narrative, um, and they like to take care of sheep, and they have a garden. And they might explain that, well, this is important. We know that this 
the, the, uh, this person is spouse to someone who's a shepherd. But that's not a historical account. Song of Solomon doesn't pretend to be a historical account. It, instead, it's a poetic expression of the love that the uh, woman has for her beloved and the beloved has for her. Instead of reading it for the goal of discovering and developing a historical report, we must dwell on the poetry of it, the metaphor of it. Consider the beauty and peacefulness evoked in this expression of the lover. The, the lover is surrounded by spices and sheep. It's very peaceful. And so her lover is dwelling in beauty and peace. And, and so that beauty and peace is also brought into the loving relationship they share. So it's, it's very important that we think about how we're reading different texts, um, for what uh, purpose they are written, um, so that we understand what they're actually saying. But I've also heard some people talk about we always need to read the Bible literally. I'm not sure if this is a very helpful or a meaningful phrase. First of all, I think it's very vague. Um, it doesn't really explain, we don't really know what that means. Like someone says literal, well, if you're reading a psalm literally, what does that mean? Because the psalm doesn't have historical information. If you're reading, um, if you're reading like 1 Kings, a passage there, maybe I could understand, but there's different passages of the Bible that it doesn't, seem, it doesn't make sense how you could read that literally. Secondly, it ignores this importance of understanding the biblical books in their original genre. To take everything in the Bible extremely literally would be quite misleading. Many pastors don't even speak uh, always literally in their sermons. There are jokes, sometimes there's sarcasm. Um, I know I use a lot of sarcasm, that's where my love language is. Um, so I, I like, so, so to even take me literally would be very misleading. Some of my friends will um, uh, call me out, they'll, they'll be confused by me because I'll start telling a story and they're like, what, what are you even talking about, Jacob? I don't know. Um, but to only ever speak straightforward and literal wouldn't, would not be interesting for a speaker in a conversation or especially in a biblical text. So why do we expect the Bible to be read in such a little fashion? Why do we, only, why do we think we should read all biblical books in the same way? Um, there is a lot of humor, sarcasm, and even hyperbole throughout the Bible. One of my favorite like, humorous moments of the Bible is uh, in Acts 2.15. Um, that's the story of Pentecost, where the Spirit has come down upon the disciples. And, and all these people are saying, well, these people are they're prophesying in different languages. And all these people are saying, oh, these people are just drunk. And Peter gets up and says... Um, he said, uh, indeed, these men are not drunk, um, as you suppose, for it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. So I've always found that amusing. I don't know. Yeah. Further, I really appreciate there's a great pun that Jesus makes in Matthew 16 18. Even Jesus doesn't always speak this straightforward. Um, you should also see how many questions Jesus asks. It's not always clear. Um, he doesn't give a straightforward expression. But he's talking to Peter um, and his disciples, and Peter at one point boldly declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so then Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, if you look at like the original Greek text, um, it's really fascinating because literally uh, the Greek word for Peter is Petros, but the Greek word for rock is Petra. So Jesus is almost saying, you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church, which is almost to say as if you are rocky, and upon this rock I will build my church. I, I, so I don't think that we can look at the Bible as if it's just this very straightforward, um, easy-to-understand text and take it a literal fashion. Um, I, we ought to be attentive in the study of Scripture as to what sort of language is being used. Um, the, the multiplicity of genres we see in the Bible also challenges using a literal approach. Um, I'm not saying that Scripture is only ever metaphorical, only that, that we must remember the importance of not always reading something literal 
if it's not meant to be taken literal. A great example of this is when Jesus tells parables. To say a literal approach is used in such, an area, in such a scenario is quite confusing. How can you read a story told to educate literally? Is that to assume that the story actually occurred? Uh, when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, I don't think that we should assume that there was actually a prodigal son involved. Um, the power in that story was that um, Jesus was using that to educate people. Um, it doesn't mean it's less real. It just means that um, we read it in a different fashion. So you can talk all day about the importance of genres, and you can spend a long time talking about how you read different biblical genres. But as this is a class on Revelation, I felt it might be appropriate to talk about the genre of Revelation. Um, and, and Revelation is very much a hybrid document. Uh, the three, three main genres that are influential that we see um, in Revelation are its nature as a letter, its nature as a prophecy, and then an apocalypse. I'm going to say it on all, all of those, talk on all of those. Um, and then I'm also going to add two comments about how Revelation functions as a poetic and a liturgical text. So if you didn't get all those, I'll say them again, too, as we get through. So first of all, let's talk about Revelation as a letter. Um, ancient letters had a very had a general format. Um, and this is where, if you want to follow in your Bible, I'm going to look at, uh, we're going to jump through a lot, because I'm going to point out some phrases. But um, let's look first at Revelation 1, very beginning. Uh, so ancient letters had a general format, just as we use general formats. Um, and when we write letters, when we write emails, we might write like, Dear Jane, yada, 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 yada. Um, or, or at least, and then you'd, um, so we might say, Dear Jane. And then we, I might say, I hope you're doing well. And then I say, like, I need you to do this for me, yada, 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 yada. And then say, Sincerely, Jacob Lancaster. Um, in, the same, in a similar manner, ancient letters also had a kind of specific structure. Um, we often have openings uh, in ancient letters. You see this throughout the different epistles, so like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, um, in First uh, uh, um, and 2 Peter. Um, but Revelation also follows this format. And you see the opening um, in first or Revelation 1-4. You have this line, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Um, ancient letters often included the name of the person who's writing, as well as the person um, who was the recipient of the letter. Um, part, part of the reason for this was because since they couldn't email or they, could, they didn't have a developed postal system, um, or at least as we have it, they had to pass letters kind of along the road, and so people would carry letters to a city um, if they were going to that city. So it helped to just go and have, like, this, this letter's coming from this person to this people. So we see this opening, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Um, and so we know that John is the author. Um, we, we're not quite sure who John is. We know that John is a Jewish Christian prophet. Um, sometimes you have people connect uh, the John writer of Revelation with the writer of the Gospel of John. Um, we don't have enough information to necessarily know that, um, but it doesn't matter necessarily if it is the same John or if John is just another person writing, um, also Jewish Christian um, uh, kind of apostle or disciple. Um, so we have this opening, and then we also see often in uh, ancient letters in the Mediterranean world having a prayer or thanksgiving for the people. Uh, for if you were writing and you were following a Greco-Roman polytheistic tradition, you might uh, pray for a blessing to be bestowed upon someone in the name of a god. So you might say, like, in the name of Zeus, I pray that you have this power or this blessing. 
Um, or you might thank, uh, thank a particular God for giving you safe travels for something. There's a letter I studied um, uh, in my Paul class that we looked at just to get the use of the form of letter. And um, the writer thanked a particular God of the sea for giving them safe travels, but they're basically writing back to their family to say that they had made it to, uh, made it to Rome and traveled safely. Uh, in, in early Christian literature, when you have letters, they kind of modify this. Um, you have the, the Greek word charis, um, which is where, um, I'm not sure how to explain that. It re- literally means like greetings or grace. Um, often in, in just the ancient world, that was used as almost like a hello. So you might write, uh, this is Jacob, greetings to Melissa. Um, but the early Christians modified that, and you see this combination of the Greek phrase charis kai erene, um, which means uh, grace and peace to you. And so in Revelation 1-4, after we have John to the seven churches that are in Asia, we see grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the ruler of the king's spirit. And then we see also, so it's a grace and peace asking that the recipients find grace and peace, that they're blessed by God. But then you also see that um, John thanks God and blesses God. He says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Um, and, and you may, if, you've, uh, if you attend this church, um, and other pastors do it, but Pastor Jeff here, our senior pastor, um, every worship service he opens up, he always says, grace and peace to you from the Lord, um, our Father, and our uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so we see this kind of, it's just an opening greeting. We also see evidence of, uh, this is a letter um, toward the end. Um, the body of the letter is just kind of the entire letter. It starts around uh, 1-9 and goes up until the last chapter, chapter 22. Um, chapter 22, verse 8, um, we see uh, John kind of start to close. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. Um, And then he kind of gives some more instructions about how we should read this letter. Um, That's kind of a closing closing greeting. In in a lot of Paul's letters, you'll see his closing rather than giving instructions. um, Because a lot of times he is writing to specific people. He'll greet people like greet um, Prisca and um, greet these other people that he knows in that church. Um, or he'll actually use that time to uh, have people who are writing that letter with him. So maybe it's Timothy, or maybe he has someone who's writing the letter for him, literally, um, and they'll greet him. And then you also have this, uh, the closing or farewell um, in the letter. So uh, verse uh, chapter 22, verse 21, you have, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. So we can, we can see this kind of clear function um, or kind of following this model of ancient letters in Revelation. Um, but it's, and there are, it's, it's very important to remember that Revelation is a letter. It's a circular letter. Um, you see that it's written to seven different churches. And so it's actually passed around throughout um, these, this route of churches in Asia Minor. Um, but what, one of my uh, favorite um, contemporary theologians who's writing on Revelation, um, his name is Richard Baucom. Um, he, uh, he argues that the plurality of misinterpretations and abuses that we see in Revelation come from a neglect of the fact that it is, in fact, a letter. Um, it's essential to remember when we're reading Revelation that it is 
a specific message addressed to a specific audience. And our perspective as readers kind of jumping in on that conversation must be considered. Um, a letter can speak to readers completely divorced from its original audience, but only when something of the context of its original addressees becomes part of the way that it speaks to them. For example, in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, we have Paul sending a letter to the church in Corinth, and one of the biggest challenges they're facing is a lot of division. Now, when we read this, that, um, that book of the Bible, from our 21st, perspective, 21st century perspective, we might not understand some of the specific challenges they're facing, but we can learn from that in terms of, um, in terms of how to approach division within um, different groups, and specifically how to think about division in a church if we're facing that challenge. Um, one of my, uh, my uh, advisors uh, teaches when he talks about how we look at texts that were addressed to an audience that is not, was not originally us. Um, he talks about contingency versus coherency. Contingency is, where, you, is uh, where the letter is contingent upon its original context. So a letter like Revelation we, is contingent upon the fact that it was written in the first century to first century Christians or first century Christians and Jewish Christians in Asia Minor. Um, coherency, however, is how, even though it was a message specific, that was specific in its original context, it still can transcend that. Um, I use the example of if I, I, I play piano, and if I happen to go in and study with uh, a teacher um, some one afternoon, and then they emailed me, um, just out of the blue, and said, Jacob, uh, you should curve your fingers more, or relax your fingers more. And then said, sincerely, Martha. Um, if, uh, if someone else read that, read that email out of context, that might be very odd. They might speculate, like, maybe this is metaphorical. Maybe Jacob is, is clenching his metaphorical fingers and just not looking at life um, in, a, in a relaxed and peaceful way. But if we think about the original context of that letter, um, it's that Martha was writing to me and asking and telling me that I should curve my fingers because that was a challenge I was facing in playing the piano. Now, even if you weren't the original um, recipient of that, such a message, if you play piano, that might be something helpful. So that's kind of how way, like, the, the specific message was contingent and it was specifically addressed to me as a piano player, but it can still be coherent and, and be understood in a context afterwards. Um, so we, can, we cannot take a letter that is written to a particular church and assume that all the, the meanings have to be understood only in our context. This is not to say, though, how that is worthless, but that we have to think about how we can understand it um, as, as pulling themes out of its original context to apply to our current situation. Um, so for Revelation, we have to realize, I've already said this a few times, Revelation is a uh, first century letter written to an audience of first century Christians in Asia Minor. And so when we're, when we're interpreting it, we have to interpret the symbols and the different, um, the different stories in light of its Jewish Christian context and its uh, context in the Mediterranean world. And if you haven't, uh, Jeff provided a kind of list of own symbols. Um, if you haven't got one of those, I think it's very useful. Um, I'm not going to read through it, so you don't have to pull it out right now. But he has it, about, I put some on that back table. I think it's useful because it kind of, a, a lot of those we may be familiar with just because we've um, heard the Bible, we've heard symbolism talk about, but it helps us start to think about what are these symbols meaning, what's the significance of these symbols. Um, 
Uh, I, I also want to add that this is a letter, but as I've already said, this revelation is a hybrid document. So it is both um, addressing a specific group of people in a specific time, but it is also very useful because it speaks in a prophetic manner, it speaks in an apocalyptic manner, and a pastoral manner. As, as a circular letter, letter, there is a little less contextual specificity, um, meaning that it's easy for us to understand the sum of the themes, because when John's writing, he has to write in a way that can be understood by the seven, the seven churches that are in um, Asia Minor. Um, but I also think that Revelation in particular, even if it was just a random circular letter, um, is uh, especially um, addressed to a wider audience than just those who are in this original context. Um, it's significant that John addresses seven churches um, in Revelation, and you see this some throughout the rest of the Bible as well. Seven represents uh, completion or perfection. Um, and uh, Richard Balkum, who's the guy I recommended, um, he's, he's great. If you want his book, I'll give you the name of his book after this. But he says that John's address to seven churches indicates that his message is addressed to specific churches as representatives of all the churches. The conclusion is confirmed by the refrain, a summons to attend to prophetic oracle, which occurs in each of the seven messages um, which are addressed to the church. That's in Revelation 2 uh, and 3. Um, we see seven specific addresses to each church. And you see this recurring, uh, recurring line, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Uh, so even if the Spirit is saying a specific message, we can start to think about what is the Spirit saying that also reflects our situation. Um, Revelation, then, is in particular calling all churches to listen for how the specific address of the specific context and specific challenges applies to each year's particular context. Um, the range of different situations we see in the seven churches, and you'll get into more specifically what's going on with each church um, in the next few lectures um, when you get to Revelation 2 and 3. Um, the range is sufficient that any church, Christian church in the late uh, first century could find analogies to its own situation in one or more of the messages, and then therefore find the whole book relevant to itself. And then churches in later periods have also been able to do the same, allowing for a necessary dis, uh, or adjustment, um, a, ne a necessary dis degree of adjustment um, for changing historical context. Um, Balcom also goes on, and he's talking about, uh, in Revelation, uh, toward the end of Revelation, uh, chapters 14, roughly to about 18 or 19, you see um, the great city of Babylon falling. Um, and he he points out how Revelation, and you'll, you'll get more of this, Revelation is critiquing empires in a way, particularly the Roman Empire, but also the kind of concept of imperial domination. And uh, he says that any society whom Babylon's cap fits must wear. Any society which absolute, absolutizes its own economic prosperity at the expense of other comes under Babylon's condemnation. So thus we have a main principle that must guide us in reading Revelation. Um, the book predicts the fall of Babylon, that is the fall of Rome, um, which is fulfilled uh, after the message. But um, we find continuing revelance as the prophecy transcends its original context and can still inspire um, and give hope for the coming of God's kingdom. So for a letter, remember, Revelation as a letter addresses a contextual situation but it nonetheless speaks clearly to similar challenges 
which may be faced by people outside of that original context. Secondly, we need to think about how Revelation is also prophecy. Throughout the Bible, we see prophecy function in kind of two main ways. You have uh, prophecy function um, to challenge people and to comfort people. One of my mentors uh, uses the phrase that the gospel will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Um, so in, in works such as uh, Hosea, who's one of my favorite Old Testament prophets, um, we see how God tells Hosea, and this is a great line, he says, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So here Hosea is called to uh, take a wife of whoredom, but as a model and a witness and a challenge to the people of Israel who are forsaking God, who are leaving God for other gods. But we also see in other prophetic texts, like Jeremiah, how this message is one, or the prophetic message is one of comfort. So in uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, 10 through 11, we have uh, God is speaking through Jeremiah to the people who um, are learning that they are facing exile. Babylon is creeping up upon them. And he comforts them and he says, uh, But as for you, have no fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and no one shall make him afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. So Revelation, as a prophetic text, also shares um, these two functions, that is, the, fun the prophetic challenge and the prophetic comfort. In Revelation 7... 16 through 17, um, if you want to turn to this, uh, this is one of the, one of the I, I see two main passages of comfort, although there's uh, smaller lines. Uh, we see uh, uh, 7, so this is 7, 16 through 17. Um, uh, this is an angel speaking about those who have died uh, for the witness of Christ. And the angel says that they, that is the martyrs, will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away for every tear from their eyes. And then we also see a similar promise in Revelation 21.4. This kind of uh, 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 sentiment of wiping tears from eyes is, is echoed, uh, where we say that God will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. But the role of prophet, as we've said, is also to challenge. Uh, we cannot forget like the fiery witness of Elijah, for example, as he challenged King Ahab and the priest of Baal on Mount, um, on the mountain. Uh, he challenged them because Ahab was leading the people of Israel astray, and his priest of Baal were um, leading Israelites to worship other gods. And after demonstrating the true power of one god, Elijah kills all the Baalite priests, um, challenging the people to follow the one true God. Um, and so this, this challenge um, is also echoed in Revelation. Um, if you turn to Revelation 14, uh, Revelation 14, 1 through 5, we have this kind of image of uh, 144,000 144, of uh, the followers of the Lamb, which is a more metaphorical number representing the fullness of God's people. Um, worshiping uh, the Lamb, standing on the heavenly Mount Zion, and we see this uh, angel in, in chapter or verse six of fourteen, um, telling 
uh, calling all the nations to fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Um, but then we also see uh, that 1-9 is, is a prophetic challenge. It's a warning to those who do not follow God. Uh, and this is a, cha- sorry, chapter 14, 9. Um, chapter 14, verse 9. Uh, an angel informs us and calls out to people saying, those who worship the beast, that is the evil um, and the devil, um, and its image, and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into a cup of his anger, and they'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Um, a third element um, that emerges out of these two kind of combinations, this, this concept of, of prophetic comfort and this concept of prophetic challenge, is a prophetic exhortation. Um, we see, throughout the book, we see um, this uh, admonishment for people that are following the Lamb to stand up to evil, to resist uh, the allures of the surrounding culture, and uh, witness to Christ, uh, be faithful witness. Um, we, all, we see later in Revelation 14, 12, just a few verses down, um, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Uh, so there's a call for um, these people to stand up to suffering, even if um, even if the beast is destroying them, um, they, they can have their, their challenge to stand up to it because they also um, have courage in the fact that God will wipe away their tears, that death will be no more, that they'll be rescued um, from the persecution. Not that they won't die for God, but that in the end they will have victory because um, God is going to be with his people. Um, uh, the prophetic challenge to those who reject God is also calling to the faithful to avoid falling into the various uh, traps in which followers of the Lamb um, find themselves trapped in, in a rival culture. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2, I'm sorry, I'm making you jump around so much. Um, uh, we see at the end of almost all of these messages to the churches, uh, this kind of challenge or this kind of uh, statement as to what will happen to those who uh, follow God and what, ha- what will happen to those who um, will not follow God. So in 2.7 we see, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. And then in 2.10 we see uh, this admonishment to be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Um, and in 2.16 we have this command to repent. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Um, so such exhortations continue throughout the rest of the ecclesial addresses and throughout uh, Revelation. The general exhortation for people in Revelation is to repent if you are following the beast rather than the one true God, or if you are following the Lamb, to hold fast in the face of the beast persecution and be a faithful witness, uh, following the model which Jesus has given us through the witness of his life, death, and resurrection. Um, but you can do that because you can have um, confidence that God is with you, that God is in the world, that um, the Lamb has already conquered. We see in Revelation 5 this image where uh, Jesus, the Lamb, has conquered uh, through his slaughter, not through violence. But So even in the face of violence, even if violence kills you, um, you can still share in Christ's victory. Uh, now it is, it is true that as a prophetic book, there are some predictive passages. Often we think about prophets as speaking what will come in the future. However, the main uh, point is not to predict the future, but to shed light on the present. The predictive 
elements are to let the people know the consequences of their sinful ways and encourage people with the hope of God's return and rescue or presence within challenges. Um, but Revelation has often been used incorrectly in some ways because of its prophetic nature, um, and it's used to predict the end of the world. Um, so we, often, we call Revelation apocalyptic text. The first word of Revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis, um, which translates to revelation. But we've uh, taken apocalypse, apocalypsis and make it into apocalypse. And um, you may be familiar with movies about zombie apocalypses or the end of the world. Um, apocalypse has this very uh, destruction of the world kind of uh, thing. And it really just means a revealing. And I'll say more on that in just a second. But um, I want to challenge... Uh, I want to challenge any, any perspectives that uh, want to focus on Revelation as predicting what will happen in the end of the world. Um, it doesn't give a literal uh, prediction. Instead, it gives us um, uh, a prediction of God's eventual reign, that God will come into the world. Um, we can't predict exactly what that will look like. We can't predict exactly um, what signs will be precede that, but we can know that God will rule. Um, and God's people will share in Christ's victory. Um, uh, and But even in the predictive uh, moments, um, the concern of Revelation focuses on challenging, um, for example, the uh, recurrent exhortation to conquer in the addresses to the church in Revelation 2 through, uh, through 3. Um, it's it's a, uh, you must conquer over the forces of evil through Christ. And then even when it's comforting and encouraging those who are suffering, it's um, predicting, uh, it's predicting that they will find um, a, a cessation of violence. They will have no more tears. They will have no more death. Um, so we see, and, and we're, we're going to see this. I'm going to start talking about Revelation as an apocalypse. Um, the whole is focused more on revealing to the hearers of the message how they are prophetically called to be witnessed in the world, encouraged by the fact that even in the face of death, they will have victory in the blood of the Lamb. That is the focus rather than um, just giving us information about the end of the world. So um, this last, this kind of last main genre point is on Revelation as an apocalyptic text. And this is one of the kind of most influential genres in the formation of Revelation. Uh, as I've said, it opens uh, up with the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get the English word apocalypse. Literally translated, this just means a revelation or an unveiling um, or a revealing. Uh, and we see apocalyptic literature kind of merge a little bit after the uh, Jewish prophetic traditions. So, like, we see elements of um, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic kind of worldviews in, um, in, like, the book of Daniel. And then um, for, as Methodists, we don't have this book, but we, we call, uh, there, there's some books in what we call the Apocrypha, um, which are included in uh, uh, the... Catholic and Eastern Orthodox um, biblical canons, um, and there are some what many scholars will call a classify under apocalyptic literature in, in those books. We also see some apocalyptic elements in documents found uh, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a uh, collection of texts we found about uh, maybe 50 or so years ago. I'm blanking on the exact date right now. Um, and there were some biblical texts here, but there was also some extra text, some prophecy, some apocalyptic literature. Um, but uh, apocalyptic literature expresses a particular worldview. Um, I think one of the best definitions for this comes from a scholar named uh, John Collins. Um, and he writes that apocalypse is a genre of revelatory li literature. That is a genre 
of uh, literature that is revealing uh, within a native narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages uh, eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Um, so that is to say that um, revelation as an apocalyptic literature fits in that because um, it is a narrative in some ways. Um, there's, it's, it's, hard, it's not a narrative such as the Gospels, but there are narrative functions. Um, and you do see a revelation uh, given to John through an angel where um, a, the heavenly perspective in the world is disclosed to the Christians um, receiving this message and to us today. Uh, and it is both a, a temporal uh, re uh, revelation in that it reveals what is going on um, like at the end and that is our kind of reassurance that, that God will conquer, that's the kind of temporal aspect and it's spatial in showing that um, there's another kind of supernatural world, a transcendent world that is, is more than what we see. Uh, sometimes uh, it seems like prophecy and apocalypticism um, shouldn't be distinguished. Uh, there's a scholar that says that both of them present themselves as delivering a divine message. They presuppose a mythical worldview in which the heavenly world determines what will happen on earth and look forward to an ideal age. Um, and so uh, he had argued that we shouldn't really think about apocalypse as more as uh, something distinct from prophecy. Um, and, and it is, it is uh, that is a good point. It does, um, apocalypse and prophecy both kind of send a message that is trying to help other people understand what their call is in the world. Um, but it's also to note that uh, one of the main distinctions in apocalypse and prophecy is that prophecy often has direct a direct kind of message about a specific challenge, whereas uh, apocalypse apocalyptic literature is distinguished by its focus on kind of unveiling this heavenly perspective on the world. Um, now I said all that, but for the sake of studying Revelation, it's not always important to distinguish precisely or distinctly what is apocalypse and what is um, prophecy. Uh, I've, I mentioned that Revelation is a prophetic book just as much as it is an apocalyptic book. Um, and it's probably best to um, understand uh, Revelation as either a prophetic apocalypse or an, apocaly an, an apocalyptic uh, prophecy. Um, the, the interconnected kind of nature of how these kind of flow together makes it difficult. Um, but, and and John, John's overall kind of um, uh, project in Revelation is to, is to speak in a prophetic way using the apocalyptic genre. So what that means is that John is using the way in which um, his uh, revelation from God is revealing um, a heavenly perspective on the world, and he's using that to help us to think about um, and help Christians to know what their call is um, from a prophetic standpoint. Um, so uh, when, when we think about apocalypse, what I think is really important to remember is that apocalypse um, is, means that there is a revelation from God um, that is uh, revealing a way to look on the world uh, from a heavenly perspective. Uh, such a revelation is shaped by this kind of prophetic task, this way of helping us understand how we are called as Christians. Um, and, uh, and it helps uh, us understand what it means to conquer um, in uh, the blood and the model of the Lamb. So, for these kind of three main kind of elements of Revelation, that is as a letter, as an apocalypse, and prophecy, um, I like this way of putting it. As an apocalypse, 
revelation reveals what must soon take place. As a prophecy, it testifies to the word of God and Jesus Christ. And as a letter, it addresses seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. Um, and we can see kind of all these three elements in just the, if you turn to Revelation 1. Uh, Revelation 1, you have the opening, the revelation of Jesus Christ, or uh, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Um, so we already know it's, a, a re- it's going to have some apocalyptic elements. Revelation 2, uh, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. There we see it's um, reminding us that it has a prophetic nature. And then uh, Revelation 1-4, we see John to the seven churches that are in Asia. We see that it is John writing to um, these uh, churches, and so it is a letter. Um, but my, and so those are kind of the three main things I think that are necessary to think about with Revelation. Um, my last two points are about how we can consider Revelation both a poetic and a liturgical text. So to point out that Revelation has a poetic nature, I'm not trying to say that Revelation is a poem. Rather, I'd like to suggest that the poetic nature of many passages in Revelation uh, invites us into a different headspace when hearing a reading. Um, So instead of of analyzing as philosophical prose or um, a historical account, um, we ought to let the text bring us into an experience rather than making a specific argument. Um, I mean, there are arguments made in Revelation, but it, it kind of draws us into this in this world where an argument isn't necessary because we've come to see the world and see our lives in a different way. Um, and sometimes we get caught up when we look at the Bible, or really when we look at anything. Our world is very focused on information, so we often like will be preoccupied with trying to think about how we can extract facts from a text. Um, and and such such an attitude is is really bad when we're trying to look at. Uh, texts that have a poetic or mythological um, um, kind of approach to expressing things. Um, and it's uh, books such as Revelation are more focused on articulating feelings and attitudes rather than describing um, an objective view of reality. And, and, and one thing is important, when we're reading Revelation, a lot of times when we, when we look at a symbol, if we say like, okay, so this is referring to Rome, or this is referring to this thing, or is this... Uh, this is a challenge for us to be um, witnesses in this way. Uh, in poetic, in the poetic language that that Revelation is written in, um, it's uh, it doesn't have to just mean one thing. Um, we can you you see throughout there are examples where you have a message to seven churches. So yes, that means that there were seven churches that John was writing to. But it's also a message to the completion of the church. Um, uh, we see that. Uh, later you'll see that there are different cities described. Um, but cities are also show, associated with women in the text. You have um, the, the church being the bride. You have the, the great whore of Babylon. And there's like this blurring where they kind of, they don't have to necessarily be consistent because it's poetic language. Um, and um, this poetic language also kind of flows into its liturgical function. Uh, liturgy is the word we use, uh, at least in the Methodist circles, uh, to talk about how um, the, the language we use in worship. So when, when you say that Revelation is liturgical, you mean that it's, um, it has a uh, language which is lending itself to worship, which isn't always the, like, um, if you're looking for facts, liturgical language isn't always the funnest stuff to dive into. Um, I want to point out, uh, lastly, Revelation 5, uh, verse 9, uh, you have this kind of praise for God and for the Lamb. 
And uh, the elders are saying, um, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then later you hear thousands of voices saying, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So I'll be honest, sometimes when I read like poetic texts like this or liturgical texts, sometimes I, I'm not really interested. I'm like, I'm in like my school analytical mode. I'm like, well, okay, they're worshiping and that's all you need to know about that. But what what this does is it uh, brings us into a, um, a kind of heart and soul place rather than a mental space and invites us to uh, um, be transformed in our soul and, and our um, heart as uh, we, we praise God. Um, and so with poetic and lit- liturgical kind of natures, just think about how Revelation calls us to be in, in a kind of experiential attitude rather than an analytical attitude. Um, it's drawing us into the narrative of Revelation. Um, you might, as, as you read through, um, and I'm almost done, promise. Um, uh, as you read through, you often see things about like hearing and seeing. So it's inviting us to a journey rather than like thinking through things. Um, so here, here are the three main points I want you to leave with. I've talked about all the kind of genres. Um, I, it's very important to consider um, the genre of what we're reading in the Bible. Um, it's very helpful to, so you can make sure you understand and hear what um, the, the biblical writers were, were actually trying to say. Um, and that's not to say that it, it's limiting um, us as uh, third parties from understanding that, but it just is to say that we're going to miss out on what was going on. Maybe we'll misinterpret, or maybe we'll miss out on a whole other level if we're not understanding um, what's going on. Uh, secondly, Revelation as a uh, hybrid genre, um, it, it is a letter, and meanings it addresses a concrete situation. As an apocalypse, it reveals a heavenly perspective on the world. As a prophecy, it challenges us um, to be faithful witnesses and comfort, comforts us by giving us courage and uh, confidence in God's power so that we can do so. Um, as poetry, it moves our soul, and as worship, liter- it, worship literature, it draws us into the praise of God. And so finally, I want to pray for us as we depart today. Um, I want to pray that, that the Spirit, as we study Revelation, will move in our hearts, our minds, and our souls, um, that we can hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and how God is uh, leading us to live into his kingdom. Let us pray. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for um, this time to gather in fellowship. Um, uh, I pray that that nothing that I said was misleading um, or confusing. Um, And Lord, may may you work in the lives of everyone, whether it was uh, through me in studying Revelation or in spite of what I said. Um, uh, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Oh, one one more thing. Sorry. Um, just if you have, if you didn't have uh, the kind of schedule that Jeff put together, or the kind of symbols interpretation, or even if you were kind of looking around for what prayer we were praying at the beginning, they're all in the back. And also, there's a list. If you haven't put down your name and email, Jeff really wants to be able to uh, keep in touch and let you know what's going on. If there's has to be cancellation, or um, if he has an opportunity. Um, and also, if you're interested in any of the books that I, I've used for my research so far, you can let me know. Um,
because I have them all here. So thank you.